Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Hey, Houston, the Challenger has landed. Houston Station, uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another Space Boffins podcast. I'm Sue Nelson and with me standing in for Richard Hollingham is Kate Arkless-Gray, recently back from a stint at Space University. And while I was unable to buy a bottle of space whiskey in Duty Free and it's a bit early for a pangalactic gargle blaster, we've got water on the table and a cup of tea for all our guests at the end of the show. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientist and this month we'll be travelling to Mars and Saturn as well as discovering why a games console is a good idea for satellites if you need a laser detection device. Well, why develop something that's already been developed? I mean, a Kinect is, well, especially in satellite terms, stupidly cheap. Why, indeed. The Mars Science Laboratory's Curiosity rover couldn't quite compete with the Olympics, but it's fair to say that the mission has brought Mars back into the frame with its novel landing system and spectacular images. In fact, it was so inspiring, it caused a satirical group to release We're NASA and We Know It on YouTube. Two million views and counting at the last uh, go. And then NASA announced a new Mars mission, called InSight, which is due for launch in 2016. And joining us is a scientist who will be part of that team, Dr Tom Pike from Imperial College London, as well as Oliver Morton from The Economist, whose books include Mapping Mars. Let's start with the mission itself, Tom. What exactly is InSight? What's it going to be doing? InSight's going to be our first look at deep within the interior of another planet. So... We're going to be taking seismometers to what on Earth would be to see the earthquakes. We are hoping to see Mars quakes and from that work out the internal structure, the really deep internal structure all the way to the core. So that's the primary task. We also have a mole on our lander and that mole is going to dig down just below where we are going to be putting down and it's going to look at how much heat is being radiated from the centre of Mars. Putting these two sets of data together, we hope to be able to work out something about the evolution of Mars, what happened early on, why in some ways Mars diverged very much from the Earth. On Mars, we lost the atmosphere. On Earth, we kept the atmosphere. Mars dried out. The Earth stayed warm and wet and, and ready for life. So we're hoping to understand a little bit more about that early Mars. Let's go to Mars quakes here. Do we know for sure that Mars has Mars quakes? We have some... Is that sort of what your whole mission depends on? (laughs) Yes, we have have some really interesting clues. First of all, Gerald Roberts at UCL did some very careful looking at boulders and how they had littered around the surface. This was done earlier this year. And he compared that to what he'd seen in Italy after the earthquakes there. And he saw very similar patterns. So that's uh, that's some evidence. Now, if we look at what happens on Earth, we have quite a lot of earthquakes. We, a good seismometer can detect them every day, every hour. On the Moon, one of the prime science aspects of the Apollo missions was to land seismometers on the Moon. And they, on a much less active body, saw moonquakes. So we're expecting Mars to be somewhere in between. So we don't know for sure, that's one reason to go there, but we've got some confidence that we're going to listen to something. 
It sounds like it's doing quite a different job from the Curiosity rover, which is covered in all sorts of weird and wonderful instruments. Are there any overlaps with the Curiosity mission? We're very interested already in the pictures that are coming back from Curiosity to do with the strata. We're looking for clues, a little like what has happened to the boulders, something that a geologist looking at the pictures would say, ah, it looks like there's been some seismic activity. Now, there's no guarantee at all that we will see that with these images, but already we are seeing tilted strata, probably from water flow in this particular case. But the old distinction between the igneous and the sedimentary rock is something that we're very interested in looking at to inform what we are likely to see deep within the interior. Oliver, you know, were you interested when you heard about this mission getting its effectively commission? I I was interested. It's been a a long time coming. I remember talking well over a decade ago with uh, Bruce Bannett, who's the PI on the the InSight mission, about the possibility of looking for Mars quakes on on, on Mars. And you're almost certain I'd have thought to find something just from the fact that it will occasionally be hit by impacts. It doesn't need to excite itself from within to ring a bit. And it has the advantage that there's no noise from those pesky oceans, which add, add up to a bit of noise for earthly seismometers. I think it's a bit of a pity, though, that we are still relying on quite old technology to take things down to the surface of Mars. I mean, this is, I think this is a, a strong mission, but it's not as dramatic as, for instance, missions that people talked about in the 1990s to put small networks of seismometers onto the surface. And we don't actually have a way of getting small payloads down onto the surface of Mars very well. This isn't going to go down on a sky crane, like Curiosity did. No, this is very much... Uh, Uh, Oliver's right. Part of the strength of the mission, as far as the proposal is concerned, is that we are using what has worked before. This is the the old tried and trusted. But but that's often used, that's often a euphemism for never actually moving on, isn't it? The lander technology is tried and trusted, but the instruments themselves, that is a little different. We haven't put geophysics instruments that can look below the surface onto Mars before. And Oliver is right that we don't have a, a move forward, therefore, in terms of the landing technology. But the instruments themselves, and particularly what I'm working on at Imperial, which is the micro-machined seismometer, this is a, a, a silicon sensor, very different from not normally what you would use on Earth. And we have an eye to the future and actually more risky landing manoeuvres and actually going down with shocks that might be of the order of three, four or 5,000 Gs So we're testing our technology already to see if we could get down on, say, a penetrator deployment that would be able to put down much more than the single station that we have within sight. The first thing I wondered about was that, as far as I had heard, the NASA budget for planetary exploration had been cut quite severely, and obviously they pulled out of the European ExoMars. And then suddenly they've announced this new mission to Mars. I, I kind of wondered if you had any thoughts on whether this is some kind of U-turn or what is it about this mission that they've suddenly managed to find money for? Well, we were in competition against two missions which were going much further away. There was Time, which was a Titan Mare Explorer, and Chopper Comet Hopper. These both relied on a nuclear power source to give them the energy that they needed for the mission. Given that that was the competition, NASA had a choice between two missions with quite exciting power sources, but actually quite a large amount of risk to do with that power source. And then they had us, 
that happened to be going to Mars. It's almost coincidental from that point of view that we happen to be chosen against those two missions and our destination happened to be Mars. Another thing that's interesting is that you, you see as it were, competition between different planets. There's also a certain amount of competition between different scientific disciplines. The geologists have been incredibly successful in getting their sort of Mars program going. There's a lot of geology with a hint of biology going on on the surface of Mars. That's what Curiosity does. Geophysics, though it seems very similar, can be quite different. One of the things that I think is interesting about InSight is we're currently learning about the uh, structures of large, small planets, the Dawn program, the Dawn spacecraft, I think just the other day, left Vesta and is going on to Ceres. So looking at the biggest of the asteroids, which have some level of sort of uh, distinction between crust and core. And now we're looking at the smallest of the big planets, or more, almost the smallest of the big planets, and looking at the same sorts of issues. So although InSight happens to be going to Mars, it's in a sense it's looking at rather broader geophysical questions, whereas things like Curiosity or ExoMars are looking at very specific Martian questions. I'm slightly worried that ExoMars is just another mission on the same lines. We need ways of getting to Mars easier, of getting things onto all sorts of other planetary bodies more easily. I don't see ExoMars providing with that. Well, with all the recent excitement about Mars, it's easy to forget that Cassini has been orbiting Saturn for almost eight years. During that time, it's been steadily sending back images of the planet, its rings and moons, and a lot of that raw data goes to Luke Donis at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado. Richard Hollingham went to meet him. Typically once a day, the data are sent from the antenna on Cassini to the ground. There are stations all over the world, so Madrid, Canberra, and so forth, one in California. And then about an hour later, the scientists have access to that data. So it's typically about once a day that we get new data. In terms of the time delay... When you get an image or you get data, when was that actually taken? How many hours ago was that captured? So it takes about an hour and a half for uh, just the light travel time from Saturn. Depending on the schedule, we usually get things a day or two after the, the image was actually taken. That's still pretty amazing, though, isn't it, that you can get these pictures from Saturn in a, in a matter of hours? Yeah, it is because, you know, Cassini took almost seven years to get to Saturn, so, yes, light is a lot faster than, than matter. So, What comes in here in terms of the data? What sort of images do you get? Because we're used to seeing these amazingly crisp, clear, stunning images that Cassini's right. taken. Cassini has a CCD, which is the same type of detector you have in a digital camera, although it's only a one megapixel uh, CCD. So this always, you know, amazes me that we can get anything at all because, you know, you can't buy a digital camera with that poor resolution anymore. I suppose it was, what, 1990s technology? Early 1990s technology. But nonetheless, it's a lot better than what we had. I was a bit involved with Voyager and, and then we had Viticons, which were basically TVs. So that data involved a lot of processing. So what do you get then when it comes in here? What sort of things are you seeing? I specialize on the rings. I mostly look at ring images and also some of the satellite images. So we get these, you know, one megapixel images in this funny NASA format that nobody else uses. Often the raw images are quite good themselves. They may need a fair bit of processing, but usually they don't actually because the rings are pretty bright in most geometries. What happens when you stop getting the images? We're still expecting it to work until 2017. When Cassini was planned, the mission was just four years. Then we got a two-year extension, and then we got a seven-year extension, which is at 
a much lower level of activity. So, you know, we can't do whatever we want, but nonetheless, we are going to get data up to 2017 if nothing breaks. And we expect that during the last year of the mission, we'll get some really amazing things because right now we're not allowed to fly right over the rings. But at the end of the mission... Because it's too risky. Because it's too risky, that's right. And we'll also get a direct determination of the mass of the rings from radar. You know, the rings are actually massive enough that they should deflect the spacecraft. So for the first time, we'll know the mass of the rings, which has been speculated about but never really measured directly. So in terms of Cassini, in a way, the best is still to come as far as you're concerned. We've got less than a 1,000 images of the rings at resolutions better than one kilometer per pixel. And, uh, you know, we should greatly exceed that during the last year of the mission. So, so yeah, really the best is yet to come. And, I, I, you know, I really hope it lasts the five years we need to get to that. Do you feel a little overshadowed by Mars missions at the moment, though? Or don't you care? Well, I, I, I mean, this is a sensitive subject, but uh, of course, with anything, you know, there are kind of factions and um, uh, NASA's funding is not at a great level right now. And I do think there's perhaps a bit, you know, too much emphasis on Mars and a bit too little on the outer solar system. But it certainly is true that you know, Mars is a lot easier to get to. You know, you can go to Mars in less than a year, and it's a lot easier to do everything, whereas it took seven years for Cassini to get to Saturn. And, you know, you can't have a solar-powered mission at Saturn. You have to have a radioisotope generator. So that just makes everything harder, more expensive. Personally, I'm disappointed that we're not going to the moon more. I mean, there are some very successful unmanned missions at the moon now, You know, I'm part of a Lunar Science Institute, which is based here at Southwest Research Institute. And now it's the whole scope of it is going to be changed. And NASA can't seem to decide quite what it wants to be. You know, in the last decade, there was a big push to go to the moon, and that was sort of nipped in the bud. And now NASA's no longer planning to send people to the moon. So so Mars seems to be the place to go at the moment. And in terms of Cassini, it's disappointing there isn't a a successor mission, at least funded. I mean, there are lots of ideas out there, but no one sort of said, right, here's the money, go ahead and plan one. Yeah, exactly. And um, I know a lot of people were really hoping that this Titan Mare Explorer would be selected. It was one of three missions under consideration, and that actually would float in a lake in Titan because Titan is lakes of hydrocarbons. But that was not selected. Another Mars mission was selected. And it's actually a very good Mars mission. I, it's, it's a geophysics mission, which I think is perhaps more interesting than some of the Mars missions that have flown before, but uh, that's just my bias. Luke Donis from the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado. I just think how exciting it must be to be one of the first people who sees those images from another planet. I, wow, I'm, I'm really very jealous about that. Tom, do you think this is the way that planetary science is going to be from now on, playing it safe, keeping it to sort of relatively low-budget missions? I think that's going to be an aspect of it because the idea of getting a lot of data back requires launching often with different payloads. Uh, and Oliver's point about mixing together geology's had it, its time on, on the Sun, on Mars, and now geophysics gets a go. So you want to be able to launch things on a regular basis. However, I think it is also important that there is room for really quite innovative landing 
concepts. And there are other NASA programs. There is the New Frontiers program, which Titanmare Explorer, that may be very well positioned for funding under that particular program. So I think that what we're doing with our particular sensors, we would hope we will be able to launch on a range of missions, get back science from different planets, and Mars, to some extent, is a start rather than an end. We want to know geophysics around the solar system, not just from one particular point or from Earth, the Moon and Mars. We need to know it from a lot more locations. Oliver, do you think Mars is worth revisiting at the expense of Saturn? It depends what you really want a planetary science programme for. If you want it just to keep people who are interested in planetary science occupied, then you share it out and on Buggins' turn basis. If you want a prospect for things that might one day be sites for human exploration, then you go to places which humans might get to, and that's one of the arguments for going to Mars and uh, indeed, indeed the Moon. I don't think either of those are particularly good arguments. I'm not particularly interested in doing it as a popularity show either. I think that you really want to be saying, what are the grand ideas, the scientific and more than scientific themes that we're exploring with these programs and also you want to be asking how do I make this cheaper always and that's not something planetary science has been terribly good at doing Um, and I think the answers there would be in fact that you would beef up attempts to study exoplanets because the grand questions about the frequency of different types of planet and indeed eventually the spread of life in the universe are going to be questions that we're not going to answer just looking at the planets of this solar system. We're going to use answer by looking at the local neighbourhood instead. So I would actually sacrifice both some Mars and Saturn missions for a better focus on exoplanets, but I'd sacrifice a lot of science for better technology for future science, better ways of landing on Mars, better ways of going to Titan. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Just search for Space Boffins. Last month, we heard from Dr Chris Bridges from the University of Surrey and engineer Sean Kenyon from Surrey Satellite Technology Limited about Strand One, a smartphone on a miniature satellite that's due to be launched later this year. Now, we promised news of Strand Two, and you'll be pleased to hear it's even more fun than Strand One, as it plans to use the laser ranging and detection technology found in a Kinect Games console. Richard Hollingham found out all about it, hearing first from Chris. The way that uh, the Kinect works is it essentially has a uh, laser in it uh, that goes through a uh, diffraction grating, and that splits the laser up into some very specific, essentially, dots. It then will go through another filter, and it puts like a special checker grid on it. And essentially what it does is it then detects the reflections with just actually a regular camera, but tuned to a particular laser wavelength. So if you stand in the way of those yeah. laser beams, it distorts. It, it distorts and it detects the distortion. Yes. So dependent on how these dots look, whether or not they're bent, whether or not they're stretched, you can infer something about how close it is and the materials it's perhaps made of. Why a connect? Why not just develop something if you want two CubeSats to dock? Is it, again, a, a stunt, like putting a phone in a satellite? Is it a <laughs> stunt to say, right, oh, we can use a connect because it will get publicity? Well, why develop something that's already been developed? I mean, a connect is... Well, especially in satellite terms, it's stupidly cheap. Why spend thousands of pounds paying someone who's really intelligent to develop one that's already been developed? That's just madness. Let's make sure that this one works in space and then use this one. OK, so why would you want to get two satellites docking? Well, actually, docking's really important, um, especially when you want to start making bigger things in space. The uh, James Webb Space Telescope has got these massive mirrors 
the whole thing has to unfurl. So one way of getting around that for even bigger mirrors would be to actually launch the satellite in bits and actually assemble it in space. So that's when docking starts to become really, really important. Now, Chris, in the the lab here, if we just walk Mm -hmm. over, you've got this frame arrangement, almost like a a big sort of drying rack, with mock-ups of of two of these Strand 2 CubeSats. And these are three CubeSats long, these. The thing that we're actually testing here is a magnetic docking system. So we've been working together with the other colleagues here that uh, use docking and have been developing docking for other missions, uh, such as the REST. And we're then looking to dock them together and sort of develop these systems on, this is what we call an air cushion table. So it essentially floats on a table. Imagine it like a big air hockey table, but instead of you pucking around these things, we're trying to do it all autonomously over a wireless link and get them to work on their own. You've got the Connect sensor is actually positioned over the top of them, mm-hmm. and it's a regular Connect sensor. You haven't even taken the back off or anything. Yeah. You just plugged it in. Yeah, we've essentially plugged this one in. This one here is actually just used to track the movements. And so when we actually go want to go back and post-analyse how our mathematics and how our control works, we need to figure out where we went wrong. If it's completely missed it and it's bumped into it really fast, we don't want that to happen in the space. And so we're trying to figure out what we can do and track the movement. And we just use a Connect because it's really robust. Sean, the, the Strand 1 satellite you've both been working on, yeah. that has a, a phone at, at, at its heart, an Android right. phone. But an Android phone is designed to be dropped, to be heated, to go through all the sort of traumas that phones go through. So you can imagine that'll work in space. But a Kinect sensor, I mean, that's designed to sit in the living room under the telly. Which is why we need to be a bit more careful with the testing of this, especially the actual electronics that we'll take. We're not going to take the whole Kinect this time. With the mobile phone, we're leaving it pretty much as is. But the Kinect, we are going to have to take apart and really sort of squeeze it into a CubeSat. So that plastic case will come off. A lot of the motors that will track your movements when you're using it in the living room, they'll come off. But then you've just got essentially uh, another printed circuit board and we're pretty confident that that will be fine in the space environment. So you'd send two CubeSats up on the top of a rocket. Mm-hmm. They're launched off into orbit, presumably around the same so they don't, you know, one off first and one, then the next. And then they've got to get somewhere near each other and then they dock. Is, is it as simple as that? Kind of. So after they're inserted into their orbits, you'll first want to do some manoeuvre to get you back to a rough location And from there, you can then use the algorithms that we've been developing to bring you close enough together so that when you get to about 25 centimetres apart, the magnetic docking can then take over. Could it work with bigger satellites, or does it it not scale up? It scales in terms of the docking mechanism and the connect itself in terms of the size of the satellite. The distances involved you'd have to start using different technologies. The Connect probably only works up to, what, 10 metres, something like that? Well, it'll go a bit farther in space because you don't have the, the same attenuation you do to hand you on Earth. And the metrics you, you use, I mean, when they drift apart, depends on the size of your satellite. Mass is really important, the orbit's really important, the inclination, if it's a certain inclination, they will either drift together or they will stay together more often than not. When they come immediately off the launcher, that's the most critical part. Assuming you can get two to join up in space, how many could you join? One of the programs we have called Arrest is actually joining up five of them. I guess potentially, as long as it's got the docking port on it, you can put them wherever you like them. So you could actually build a big satellite from very small satellites? Yeah, Yeah, that totally falls under what we call sort of fractionated missions. These are effectively, if they work, uh, space building blocks. 
Sean Kenyon and Chris Bridges, which sound somewhat like the Lego version of a spacecraft. Oliver, Tom, do you think this sounds like a good idea? Do you think it's going to work? Personally, I think it's a terrific idea. I think that there's uh, there's an awful lot that can be done with commercial off-the-shelf technology, as they uh, as they say in the biz. I was looking at some phone sats, as they call them, at NASA Ames recently. You know, we were hearing earlier about the fact that we currently have a, I think it costs four or five billion dollars, the Cassini mission out there taking amazing pictures of Saturn with a crappy camera. <laughs> you really do want to be able to get better technology up up and running quicker, and phones are great for that. And, uh, you know, you can actually write apps. And one of the things I thought was wonderful, talking to the PhoneSat people, was that the little motor inside your phone which makes it vibrate... If you have, I think, three of those rather than just one in the phone, you can do three-axis stabilisation of the spacecraft just with those little motors, because it's just, just wonderful. And the idea of docking them together, the idea, the very idea of the CubeSats, which have standardised these small satellites so that you can launch them in various different ways and they'll always... You know, you can always know what you're getting. I think that's a, that's a terrific idea. It is interesting, though, of course, if you go down this microspacecraft route, if you go around down... We are talking a little bit about networked science. If you go around the idea of, sort of, like, putting down sensor networks on other planetary bodies instead of, sort of, like, big things like Curiosity, you do have the problem that you're actually taking the unmanned program further away from the potential human exploration program because you're developing different sorts of... So it's sort of like if instead of sending out the Enterprise, you just send out lots and lots of tricorders and, you know, ask them to tell you about the universe without any, without any Spock involved. Let's just move on just very briefly now because I want to hear all about Kate's Space University. <laughs> and first of all, you know, how was it? <laughs> oh, it was absolutely amazing. If you can try and imagine what spending nine weeks at the International Space University based at the Florida Institute of Technology in partnership with Kennedy Space Centre on the 25th anniversary of the Space University, on the 50th anniversary of Kennedy, at a time where the shuttle programmes just ended, but there are still some shuttles there. So they're not quite as precious about them as they were. So you got to play on them then? Not exactly, but I could... Well, you've got a piece of tile in your handbag. Uh, I don't, but I did. I did hold a piece of uh, space-flown thermal protection system tiling while standing underneath Endeavour in one of the processing facilities. If I jumped with my hand in the air, I, I would have touched it and probably poked a hole in it. So I didn't. <laughs> I mean, that's a sort of a dream, sort of sabbatical, really, for anyone, isn't it? To spend nine weeks just concentrating on on space. Well, the, the whole approach of the, the Space University, well, they, they call it the three eyes. So it's international, intercultural and interdisciplinary. So one of the great things was we had people from all around the world, from all different backgrounds, but also the things that we were learning kind of ranged from engineering, space physics, uh, space life sciences, through to business and management, space applications, law and policy, and even space and society. So Gosh, we had lectures on anything from, you know, future studies to orbital mechanics to, you know, how unwell you might feel if you're in zero gravity. I believe you're now a sort of a bit of a whiz now with acronyms. Oh, absolutely. So uh, what I can say is I did the ISU SSP12 at FIT and KSC, where I learned about the ISS, visited the SLSL, SSPF, VAB and OPF1 
and watch rockets from OSB2. I could go on, but uh, <laughs> I think I'll give you all a break from some of that. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, well, I'm glad you had such time. And anyone can apply for it who's interested. Just Absolutely. look it up online. Well, I'm very, very jealous. Um, thank you very much for sharing uh, that experience. And thanks too to uh, Tom Pike and Oliver Morton. The Space Boffins podcast is produced by Boffin Media in partnership with the Naked Scientists, and we're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium. Next time in the Naked Astronomy podcast, John Richer will be extolling the joys of ALMA, a massive array of radio telescopes and one of the biggest science projects of the decade. It will probe the first stars and galaxies, directly image planets as they form, and set the standard for future radio telescope projects. Finally, if you've listened to the Space Boffins podcast before, then you'll know that we've been celebrating the missions that made the Apollo moon landings possible, NASA's Gemini missions of the 1960s. Well, Neil Armstrong, who passed away last month, was part of both programmes. So in honour of the first man on the moon, we're going to end with a short tribute to Neil Armstrong, which starts with a little heard, I think, press conference about Gemini 8. Neil and... uh some of the gents that have flown on some of the flights before you, including your backup pilot there, have suggested to us that perhaps there was a susceptibility to seasickness in the water. Um, during your egress training, did either of you detect any susceptibility to seasickness? Uh, well, I think we were very fortunate, even though the water was very cold. It was pretty quiet the, the days we were out there. I've been out floating about the Gulf uh, on four occasions, and fortunately it's always been calm, and I think all of us have managed to escape seasickness. However, a Gemini is a much better spacecraft than it is a boat, and uh, if the waves are over five feet, we haven't found anybody that can survive the onslaught there yet. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Coming down the ladder now. That's one small step for man.